Hello and welcome to this episode of Keeping Track. My guest today is from Dublin and he now resides in Leitrim with his partner and sound artist Natalia Bayliss. He's been involved in the Irish underground for 30 years. He was the drummer in the mythical dalky punk band Bambi and he is currently a member of Woven Skull alongside Natalia and the pair are in the midst of converting their backyard into a multifunction space. They also run the excellent all-day festival of experimentation in music and sound in Leitrim called Hunter's Moon. My guest is a filmmaker who produced an excellent documentary about Belgian surrealist painter, sculptor, filmmaker and performance artist Ludo Mitch called Ludo is fantastic. He ran the former independent label Hypnagogic Tapes and is now the driving force behind Nya Records. Nya meaning the soul or spirit of something. Nya Records described themselves as a home for sound collectors, noisemakers and music builders who love a good Nya and they recently released an extraordinary compilation of experimental music in Ireland from 1960 to 1994 called Under the Island. He is all this and much more. Surely be to the Nya. It has to be. Mr. Willie Stewart. How are you? How's it going? Thanks for coming on, Willie. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks for having me. Do you want to give us your first tune there? Yes. So with your uh, advice, <laughs> uh, you asked for something early that I was involved in. So I'm going to play a track called Orange Whip from a band I was in called Bambi from mid-90s, from when I was 15 till about 21. So yeah, this is, uh, I think we were 16 when we recorded this so on our first 7-inch, which is quite exciting for a teenager, as you can imagine. So yeah, let her roll there and uh, enjoy.
was Orange Rip by Bambi and I was picked today by my guest Willie Stewart. Sometimes we can be dismissive of our first bands until we get a bit older. Do you have fond memories of your time in Bambi and what was the punk scene like back in Dublin in the 90s? Yeah, I would have massive fondness for back then because that was, you know, my sort of coming of age moment. You know, you're in school and you're not really getting along with people because you just don't understand them and you're kind of like this alternative kid but you haven't found punk yet or you haven't found your outlet and then or your tribe and then it was forming that band and just sort of not knowing what to do except just go to ask to play gigs do you know and through playing gigs in like the rock garden in Temple Bar that became Eamon Doran's, which is now some tourist hellhole. We would have cut our teeth like in the summer of 94, I think. Just played as many gigs as we could until then people from the sort of local underground scene sort of saw us and then we kind of got pulled into that. And that was such an exciting time to be a kid and get involved in this sort of like amazing world of DIY and punk and underground and find out about, you know, everyone was older than us, so we would have found out about loads of music from them. They were like like older siblings. So yeah, definitely really fond memories of that time. I mean, it's shaped who, who I am today, what I do. It's probably why I'm sitting here talking to you, because of that exciting time. The scene at the time in Dublin was so fractured, like uh, electronic music was definitely ruling. Everybody was getting into techno house. I think, you know, drum and bass was creeping in. So that was the big draw. So our gigs were always teeny. And the scene I was in, because we were like a punk band, but we weren't super punk. There was another scene that was way more punk (laughs) and maybe not so open to other styles of music. There's spiky haired punks, great music, great bands. Strict 90C was one of those bands. They were fantastic. But we weren't indie either. We were sort of a post-rock band, I guess, but very much into the DIY world of, you know, small gigs, fanzines, all that kind of culture. We're very, very much immersed in that. But it was teeny, like it was teeny. Yeah, at that time. I, there's a lot of parallels with Cork. I don't know if it was the same in Dublin. We were talking about this recently that when you were 15, you could start playing gigs on a Friday night in town mm. and you could cut your teeth from when you were 15 to 18. You know, Friday, Saturday nights, Thursday nights, you know, late night gigs and pretty much everyone in the venue was might be the same age as you, you know, and that that was an amazing outlet for teenagers. That is completely gone now because health and safety and, you know, the it law, seems strict, stri- The rules are stricter. Yeah. Like they don't allow kids into bars as much as they used to. But was it the same in Dublin? Was it turn a blind eye to underage bands? Ah, uh, yeah, big time. Yeah, big time. Mm. Except um, there was a really amazing venue called the Attic on the Keys in Dublin, and um, basically, our, like Bambi was kind of starting to get a bit noticed, and we were turning up in newspaper articles and stuff like this. And the owner of the bar read one of the articles, and it said, "16-year-old lads." punk band and he went 16 and then we weren't allowed to play there anymore <laughs> he thought like the cops would be there like but uh, uh we kind of changed our name for a short period and played gigs there anyway it was always grand but like like i have a friend whose daughter is really into music and really wants to go to gigs but she's still 17 so she can't even get into gigs at 17 which is mental you know our generation we were skull and pints you know watching gigs at 15 16 not a bother on us we- so we played a gig um, just before leaving start. We were about 17 now, so we were kind of elderly at that point, you know, in, in the underground scene. But um, there was a, a group of lads came in with under 16 rowing club t-shirts on. like about, <laughs> And they all got served and they all like went mental at the gig. Um, I know you grew up in a restaurant called the Guinea Pig in Dalky. And, you know, restaurants are a hard graft. 
do you think growing up in that environment helped instill a DIY or a punk ethic to the way you go about your work today? Yeah, I would say definitely. Like, I would view DIY as very much a group thing, you know. That old classic thing of like, there's no audience, there's no band, we're all the same, we're all doing it together. Half the audience are in bands, or they do fanzines, or someone's a photographer, or whatever. So, like growing up in a restaurant, like, I'm sure a lot of people think it's some kind of glamorous life, but all it is is just really, really hard work. So, I worked there, my sister worked there, my parents worked there, we all worked together in this unit, as like for the restaurant, you know? And... Like, my dad definitely would have been very inspiring because he's a kind of a classic, you know, from rural Kildare, came up with eight siblings, no shoes, all that stuff, you know. And he really, like, worked his way up to become this chef and open up his own restaurant. And he did that because he was a chancer. And he did that because he was an opportunist. I definitely got a lot of that from him as far as, like, navigating my way in this culture that I've immersed myself in and you just have to really push stuff you know you really have to go for it so his hard work and his kind of like if that's what you want you just you go for it like and don't stop I also think now that I'm kind of gotten into filmmaking the concept of, of restaurants it's like a play you know the chef is the director and he's there in the back and he's pulling the strings and this the waiting staff are like actors and they come out and they perform so seeing that has given me a real like feel for production management, events management, how to get it, what you need to do and how to like, I've gotten better about trying to involve more people to do stuff because I used to try and do everything myself. That was mental. That's not sustainable at all. So, but yeah, it definitely gave me a, it's like a ship or something or a film production. It's, you're just there. You, yeah, definitely got me in the mindset of knowing how to direct things and make things happen. So yeah, I owe a lot to my dad for that kind of inspiration, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> This is like a warm-up track to uh, the compilation, which track's not on, on the Under the Island compilation, but Daniel Figgis is one of the artists on the comp, and this was a band he was involved in after he left the Virgin Prunes called Princess Tiny Meat. I think they're incredibly underrated, and a lot of people don't know who they are. Uh, this track is phenomenal. Like, this is a reason why I did this compilation, is because where is all this magic that happened in the 70s and 80s? Nobody really knows about it that much. It's not celebrated doesn't seem to influence what the younger people do today or did a decade or so ago. So I just wanted to share this track. It's really incredible music. And if you want to see what it looks like, you just go on YouTube and look up uh, Princess Tiny Me's The Late Late Show and you'll see a very condescending gay burn basically make fun of this band <laughs> that are about to blow the minds of like everyone in the audience plus the million plus people watching it at home. They're way ahead of their time as far as, you know, breaking down gender roles and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, Princess Tiny Meat, track's called Bun in the Oven. I think you will agree that Princess Tiny Meat is a rather odd name for a group, especially if you're over 40. If you're over 40, this will probably not appeal to you, but if you have kids of 15, it'll be a wow. Don't worry about it. Princess Tiny Meat. The, the lead singer, the lead singer, the le not yet, son, the lead singer is called Binti, right? Binti. And he says that the name came to him in a dream. And you can't answer that. No answer to it. So, they're all about 17, and they're all from Dublin. Would you welcome them, most unusual group, Princess Tiny Meat, over here. Maybe I should announce it, shall I? A bun in the oven. <laughs>
I was born in the oven, that was by Princess Tiny Meat, and I was picked by my guest, Willie Stewart. When we were discussing you coming on the show, you mentioned you've been involved in the underground for 30 years. What are some of your highlights or proudest moments in those 30 years, and how has the landscape changed since you got involved? The word pride, I probably wouldn't associate with looking back because as myself and Natalia were talking recently we never seem to we're always kind of moving forward so we never take the time to look back and go yeah wow that was great you know but like we probably should it's probably healthy to do that definitely like as I, as I was saying the entering into that world was a really exciting time some of the things we've done like Woven Skull was a really enjoyable band we just toured and toured and toured like mad and put out some records and that was that was really really fun uh, Hunter's Moon was quite a wild thing to do at the time. And then I'm just really excited about how yeah, Records is going. People seem to be really engaging with it. And it's definitely the first thing I've done of that sort that's done well. You know, people are into it. Like I go into the post office every second day to post things all over the world. And it's just, it's really exciting. So yeah, just at that point now, looking back on all the other stuff, yeah, is a, cu- a culmination of all of that, I suppose. And yeah, like I say, there's nothing to be proud of per se, but it's it's nice to... I've achieved a lot and yeah. facilitated spaces and times for people to come together and enjoy and get more involved in this underground and independence, you know? Yourself and your partner, Natalia, seem to be involved in a lot of projects together. People listening to this interview who don't know anything about the underground scene, you know, in Ireland might be wondering, how does someone make a living off it? But of course it is possible or you can navigate it. Would you have any thoughts on, on that or do you just keep on going and follow wherever the works takes you? You know, some people probably try and start out with the idea of making money. Like that was never a thing for me because because of punk rock and because I know what I do is always going to be marginal and not very popular. Um, I don't know anyone that makes a living solely off their work, their experimental stuff or underground or whatever you want to call it. Like everybody has a little bit of a job on the side, you know, like myself and Natalia, like I do sort of odd jobs. Natalia works with a lot of project managing with the local art centre and Carrick and Shannon called the doc. We've always, not like a hustle, but we've always had to work to to, to, to sustain our, our art. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're not going to be selling thousands of records or, you know, the massive fees. Maybe one day, that would be nice. But yeah, I don't know anyone that makes just a living off just this. Jennifer Walsh, who's, you know, one of our heroes, incredible composer. You know, she, she's a professor. She lectures in Oxford and she gets commissioned by people to write big pieces. But, you know, she has to do the work in Oxford to sustain her life. She wouldn't be able to just probably live off the music, you know. That's very presumptuous of me. But, yeah, I don't know anyone who does it full-time just to make a living. If you have, it it would be tough. Okay, so we are going to go into the world of traditional Irish singing. This track is off a compilation I put out during the summer called Collection of Songs in the Traditional and Shano Style. Um, It's all contemporary singers from all over Ireland. I suppose... Releasing this, it's turned into a slightly kind of Lancome-adjacent release because people are getting really interested in Irish music now because of Lancome. That will be their legacy. So I decided to put this compilation together and I'm a big, big fan of Irish singing and Shannos singing. see a lot of parallels with Shannos and the experimental world and minimalism and droniness and stuff like that. This is a track by a dairy singer called Conor O'Kane. The track's called Harvest of Clover and it was recorded in our Pinewood Forest on our land uh, by Natalia Bayliss. Oh, the earth, she keeps some vibration going down in your heart and that is you. And if the people find out that you can fiddle, then fiddle you must for your whole life through. 
What do you see is at a harvest of clover or meadows to walk through on down to the river? For the ones on the corn is it dollars each cartload or the rustle and skirts of the girls as they dance by the crossroads? For Mickey John Joe a pillar of leaves and whirl and dust meant ruin and drought. To me it looked more like Seamus Rua Steppin' it off to go ticklin' trout What do you see is it a harvest of clover Or meadows to walk through on down to the river Or the winds and the corn is it dollars each cartload Or the rustle and skirts of the girls As they dance by the crossroads how could I plough my twenty-five acres with medley of horns and piccolos stirred in my brain by the crows and the robins and the windmills creaking in the valleys below? I never started ploughing my life but someone came over to take me away on down the road to a wedding or a Kelly and fill me with soda bread, whiskey and tea. What do you see is a harvest of clover or meadows to walk through on down to the river for the ones and the corn? Is it dollars a cartload or the rustle and skirts of the girls as they dance? By the crossroads. I'll take my last walk to that plot upon the hillside. I've my fiddle and I'm playing there yet. Twenty five acres and one thousand memories and not a single regret. What do you see is at a harvest of clover or meadows to walk through on down to the river? For the ones in the corn is it dollars each cartload Or the rustle and skirts of the girls as they dance by the crossroads That track, Harvest the Clover by Conor Kane, somebody did write into a radio station that somewhere Maybe it was Australia, but there was, yeah, it was Australia. There was a woman driving home in her car and that song came on and she had to pull over because she started crying. (laughs) Yeah, it's beautiful. Can you tell us about the Hunter's Moon Festival? How long have you been running it? And is there a philosophy to the festival? Any acts that you've had that really stand out or any particular years that you felt, ah, we couldn't do better than that? And how was the festival received by locals? So we started Hunter's Moon, God, it must be like 13 years, 12 years since the first one. The idea was to create an indoor festival in the town of Carrick and Shannon and focus specifically on sort of more experimental music as a really broad term in this day and age but you know mostly solo acts performing original stuff that was just a little bit weird and there wasn't anything like that there had been dark festival in dublin years before that that was massive so we wanted to use carrick because we had access to these spaces there was a church we used and then the dock art center the town seemed perfect for that kind of festival you know there's accommodation there's cafes restaurants charity shops in the daytime in the evenings there'd be gigs of this kind of music and the philosophy was just weirder the better and make it as international as possible as the budget would allow for and just you know not expose irish people to this stuff because that sounds condescending but just to create that space because it wasn't happening previously. Ten years on, things are different now, very, very much so. 
because you've got Open Air Festival on Shirkin Island and the Dublin Digital Radio crew are putting on great all-day festivals and gigs everywhere and it's a real mix of electronic music and experimental. So that's really exciting. But that wasn't there 10 years ago when we started. There wasn't that many. So we had to bring in some international acts. Um, yeah, like, you know, they're all, they were all highlights. They were all brilliant. Definitely standout performances are definitely Tony Conrad, the incredible American pioneer of sort of minimalist music. He performed with Jennifer Walsh, uh, as did Ludo Misch, came over from, from Antwerp. That was pretty incredible. Orphan Fairy Tale from Antwerp was very good. First Blood Part Two from Cork was an incredible performance that lasted about two and a half minutes. He, <laughs> so he, <laughs> he sat on the stage uh, with a little kid's turntable that he was just turning the record and he had another record on his mouth and he kept playing uh, as people were entering in the room and then when the room filled up, he stopped and walked off. <laughs> it was pretty good. Pretty good. People still talk about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was lot. There was lots more. Um, Feral Barbershop Quartet, which was like a three-piece vocal improv. They performed in our friend's cafe on a Saturday afternoon, and the audience was a real mixed bag of people that didn't know what they were getting themselves into. And it's there's a video of it on YouTube. It's absolutely incredible. Like you know, all the people who are in the know are sitting there looking cool and everyone else is just like freaking out, laughing and screaming and just totally interacting with this grunts and sounds and moans from these three lads. It's just really amazing. It was incredible. So the locals really reacted well with that. It was definitely a big contingent of Dublin and Cork and elsewhere in the country descended on Carrick for that festival and some local people, but you know, not lots, but enough, enough. kind of to make it really nice. So just imagine if you're like a music nerd and you've lived in Carrick on Shannon all your life and you've never left and all of a sudden Tony Conrad's walking down the street. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was one guy, <laughs> I won't mention his name, but I, I'd seen him in gigs in Dublin for years, uh, especially in harsh noise gigs, just going mental at all the gigs. And he actually just lives outside Carrick and Shannon. Consumer Electronics is a noise band, noise group from like the UK that's been going since the 80s. And we had them play in the dock. And that was one of his favourite groups. So... We, that was like a gift to him. You know, he's this like farmer who loves noise music. <laughs> so <laughs> like, it was like, make a wish, you know. <laughs> um, you mentioned Ludo Mitch there. Um, you did do a documentary on him called Ludo is Fantastic. So when did you start making films? Have you been doing it for long? And how did your documentary Ludo is Fantastic come into fruition? And was it your first venture into documentary making as well? As a kid, I was a, uh, really into skating, a skateboarder. There's a you know gr group of us. And we used to watch a lot of skate videos and I got really into that idea of filming, skating, putting music, to, you know, editing and putting music to it. So I started doing that when I was a kid. You could rent a video camera from our local pharmacy for 25 quid a day or something. So I'd save up 25 quid and take it out for the day and just film people skating. And then I kind of just didn't ever see that as a kind of, is that's not film, it's not this, it's what is it? Like it's just home movies kind of. But um, then I didn't really think about it again until like 2003. This band from Alabama called the Pine Hill Haints, they play Cork loads of times. So their first tour, I booked for them over here and I just decided I'll just, I'll film it because I just bought a new camcorder or something. So I turned that into a kind of a, like a, yeah, documentary travel log, like their first tour in Ireland. Some pretty funny moments in it. It's 20 years ago now, you know. Uh, <laughs> Cork looks very different. A lot of cork in it yeah. for some reason. But yeah, I did that. And then I kind of just got really, really, you know, moved to Leitrim and stuff in 2006. And that was a big adjustment to live this rural life. And then Woven Skull took up a lot of time. And then 
I was like, oh, I feel like I think I want to make another movie or I want to get into movies. Just something clicked to me. I was like, I want to get back. I want to start making films, you know? So uh, Ludo Mish, we met at Hunter's Moon Festival and then Woven Skull stayed with him on tour uh, when we were playing in Belgium. That was really cool. And then we just became good friends over that. And then I was like, get as the more I got to know about him, you know, he, he's been active since the 60s. He's a big, massive body of work. And I was like, no one's documented this. And I was like, oh, I think I'll, I'll just go for it. I'll make a film. And I had a friend, uh, Seamus Connolly, who was working for a production company in Wicklow. He had access to all the gear. And he very, very generously gave me all his time for free as a camera person and as an editor. And I was the director and producer. Again, you know, you just do it. There was no money. We had the time. We did it. And it took years to make because of uh, we were busy doing other things. So we'd only get to meet up a couple times a year and do the edit and stuff and go back to Antwerp and do more filming and everything. So yeah, it took ages. I wouldn't do it like that again, you know. But um, that's how that kind of came about. Out of a friendship, I suppose, with Ludo. And just, he's such an inspiring force. You know, he's just so underground. No interest in monetary success or anything. He just is pretty happy where he is but he's still blowing minds well into his 70s, you know? You know, editing and producing an album compared to editing and producing a documentary or a film, which is more arduous, do you think? Are they, are they both the same? Well, I guess most of the time, well, I guess it depends if, you're in a, if it's a band recording, you know? I think video editing is a different beast It's completely um, because you're kind of, when you go into the studio, you kind of go, we're going to record this song. You know, you do that and then you mix it. Whereas my approach with filmmaking is definitely you just film loads of stuff and then you go into the editing suite and you just try and write the film from there. That's arduous, but it's very satisfying because I didn't know what the Ludo film was about until we brought all the footage together and started like making a storyline, you know, because you have to ask a question when you're making a film, like what is the film about? What message do you want to get across? Whereas, yeah, with music, I think, you know, you just do it and... It shouldn't take you that long. Sometimes it takes ages, because, but it's because you're inefficient or, you know, the engineer doesn't understand what you're saying or you're terrible at communicating. But yeah, no, it's, I think they're very different things. They can both be arduous in their own way. Okay, we're going to take another track off the, the singer's compilation. This is a singer called Rosie Stewart, who is claimed as a Leitrim singer, even though she lives just over the border in Fermanagh. But I think she does the shopping in Leitrim. So, you know, she's a cross-border uh, character and she runs a singer's club up in Glenfarn in North Leitrim, which is just very close to the border. They do that into the autumn and winter. It's a real hardcore traditional singer circle. She's, yeah, she's great. She's, I don't know, she's like a pirate, you know, she's real tough. And she's got a beautiful original voice. So I picked this one from Rosie. She's brilliant. So yeah, Jug a Punch by Rosie Stewart. Dipping on the 23rd of June As I was seated at my loom I heard a thrush singing in yon bush And the song he sang was the Jug of Punch La di da dri idle diddle diddle dri idle dum dri diddle idle diddle dri idle diddle dum dri idle diddle diddle dri idle dum di idle diddle diddle dri idle dum. What better diversion could I desire than to sit me down by a roaring fire? Upon my knee a comely wench And on 
table, a jug of punch. La di da dri idle diddle idle da dri idle dum da dri idle diddle idle da dri idle diddle dum da dri idle diddle idle da dri idle dum di da idle idle da dri idle dum. Come all you weavers who passeth by, you may step in if you be dry. And if you have but a single crown, you're welcome here for to sit you down. La di da 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 for oh, when I'm dead, my drinking sore, we will have at last while it's at the flow. You may dig my grave boat wide and deep, put a jug of punch at my head and feet. La di da 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 and everyone who passes by, they may raise a glass and remember I. La di da 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 you muses a twelve and Apollo famed in Castilian pride drank pernicious dreams, but I'd not a grudge them ten times as much as long as I had a jug of punch. La di da 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 I would give it all up in a bunch for a jolly pull at a jug of punch. La di da 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 that was Jug of Punch by Rosie Stewart, and that was picked by my guest today, Willie Stewart. Willie is the, what would you call yourself, owner? The L- boss. The boss. Yeah. Okay. Willie is the boss of Nya Records. Let's talk about running an independent label, Willie, and particularly Nya Records. There's a lovely representation of folk music on the label in very different forms. For instance, you have Ian Lynch from Lancome's first solo record, One Leg, One Eye. You have a compilation called A Collection of Songs in the Traditional Anshano Style. 
and the stunning Natalia Bayliss and cellist Ema Reedy record. You also have noise music such as Robert Truman and Tom Smith, Strip Ice Water to Listerine, with liner notes from Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth. It is clear that the label represents your 30 years of involvement in the underground. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I suppose I would. Like like I mentioned earlier, it's definitely an accumulation of all my tastes that I've acquired over the years. Yeah, like the folk, I never thought I would get into folk music, but it just so happens so naturally because um, I do see parallels with Shanos and experimental music and North African music and things like that, which are all things I love. So yeah, it's definitely, it's like my tastes very, very much so. Um, <laughs> and it's exciting as well. I mean, I'm not jumping on a bandwagon, but the Irish folk thing is just mental at the moment. It's really kicking off. And then those folk artists are getting more into like, slightly experimental music like John Francis Flynn's new record is so different than his first one you know it's just they want to get noisier they want to get dronier and they want to get heavier like when Lancome started out they weren't heavy at all you know at all so yeah that's that new eye is pulling you in and the drone people want the drone people react very well to the drone so that's why I see the parallels with Shanos and drone music and experimental you know how precious are you of the type of output that Nya Records produces? Is there a type of underground genre that you love but wouldn't make sense on the label, do you think? Oh, I'd be really very precious. Yeah, like I could be putting out stuff all the time, but I have to like sit with it for a while and try and visualise how this will work as a release, what format it should go on. Will anyone want it? You know, will anyone care? Uh, it's devastating thought for people who create music, but that's the facts and... Of course, there's always a financial risk. If I'm going to put loads of money into something, like I need to break even on it at least. And that's just, I'm not trying to sound like a businessman, <laughs> but you know, you just don't want stacks of records building up in your, in your place and no one's buying them. No intention on putting out any punk records. You know, I love punk music, but it's like its own thing. And a lot of how punk record labels work is they trade a lot and they all start their own distros. So they'll have like, a lot of records to sell that they didn't put out because they've traded. That's kind of how that economy works in the punk world. I don't think it would fit what I'm trying to do with Nya. Or like, I love black metal, but I couldn't put out a black metal record because black metalers are so pure that they wouldn't buy it because they thought that the label's too weird or there's not, I'm not true metal enough. But, you know, just stuff like that. They're, they're probably my limitations. When people speak of underground music, do terms like niche or noise music bother you in the sense that they might be a bit dismissive? No, I think terms come and go. I only find noise music dismissive when it's somebody who doesn't understand anything about other music except the music that they listen to. And they might call free jazz noise or free improv noise. And it's like, it's not noise, you know, it's, it is what it is. And that's the only time I find it, yeah, dismissive. Or people like, oh, that's just noise. But it's not. And I think a lot of people thought Woven Skull was noise when we started. But it wasn't. It was melodic repetitive music with instruments. <laughs> Sometimes it got noisy, but it wasn't noise music. But yeah, I think a lot of people who don't get it just call things noise. I don't think that's fair, you know. Okay, so we're heading to Cork. Yes, bye. Danny McCarthy, uh, the legend that is Danny McCarthy. He's been active for a very, very long time and very influential in the Cork um, free improv and sound art scene. Um, Danny was a great help putting the Under the Island compilation together. Um, because of his knowledge of just what's been going on for decades. And with this compilation, I asked each artist to give me the earliest work they had. Give me something really early. I want you to like look through boxes, pull out cassette tapes, whatever you have, get it to me. I don't care if it's rough. 
Oh, rougher the better. Danny had this piece called Music for an Electric Hurling Stick that I think it was recorded in the Triscoll Art Centre in the late 80s, where he built an instrument out of a hurling stick. It's uh, I love it. It's brilliant. And there's a really nice photograph of him in the on the artwork for the cover. Yeah, enjoy uh, Danny McCarthy's <laughs> hurling stick. That was music for an electric hurling stick and I was by Danny McCarthy and I was picking my guest today, Willie Shore from Nya Records. Uh, Willie, I'd like to talk about your most recent release. In the press release it states, 
After two years of digging, hunting, unearthing archives, digitising a lot of correspondence, Nya Records is very excited to finally be announcing the release of Under the Island, a compilation of experimental music in Ireland between 1960 and 1994. Ireland, a country known mostly in the pop music arena for U2, Thin Lizzy, Stiff Little Fingers and of course the show band era of the 60s, the country is not known for producing a lot of cutting edge avant-garde music. A few very influential bands did get out such as Doctor Strangely Strange, Mellow Candle, Princess Tiny Meat and The Virgin Prunes. A strange bunch for sure, and where would we be without them? But further down the underground there were a few artists working away in their bedrooms and non-studio settings, experimenting with tapes and handmade instruments. Here for the first time is a collection of these artists and their work. Sounds that have been left in boxes on tape or cassette have now been cleaned up and presented together in a collection spanning over three decades. This seems like it was a big project, really. What are your overall thoughts on getting this compilation together and over the lane? Yeah, when I was putting together like this you know, idea of the compilation and I was trying to find all the artists and stuff the one real difficulty i had was there was no like female artists or if there was they certainly weren't given the shout outs or the space or the time or whatever it was like all when fury is on there you know she was quite established already as a, as a performer at that time you know she's an incredible person um but like i really tried hard um to try and find more female artists and there just wasn't any to be found. That's the one thing I feel strange about this compilation is that it's so male dominated, but it was either do it or don't do it, you know, but obviously I would prefer if it was more gender balanced, but it's very difficult to do that when the, the work isn't there. Whereas, you know, now it's a very different situation. Back then, I just don't know. Maybe if someone's listening to this and you were, uh, you are a woman and you were busy, please get in touch because, uh, uh, you know, I would certainly put another compilation together if I could find the work, because it is a bit of a, not an elephant in the room, but you know, it's just, uh, wow, that's a lot of dudes kind of thing. So it was two years in the making. I think uh, Nya had started and I had released Natalia Bayliss's first vinyl release, uh, Love in a Mist Edible, and her other project, Whose Woods Are These, with Ema Reedy. I think it was it was Desmond Leslie I was listening to or something, you know, from the famous Leslie family from Monaghan, who have been living there for hundreds of years in their, in their castle. Um, Desmond Leslie was quite a character. He made, you know, incredible uh, kind of music concrete or tape music in the 50s when he was living in London uh, for a lot of uh, soundtracks for uh, sci-fi movies, UFO movies, really low budget, like low budget stuff. Um, but he was quite an innovator with that. And then I was like, well, okay, so he was doing this. Where, you know, where's the rest? Who else was doing stuff? Of course, there's, you know, people we know, or, you know, Roger Doyle. He's been doing that a long time. Great composer of early tape music. And a few others, like Danny McCarthy uh, that I knew. But um, I was just really sort of digging around and asking people like Danny McCarthy and a few other people, like who else was active at that time? And to be honest, a lot of them said like nobody, there wasn't anybody. There was hardly anybody. So I really had to start thinking. Um, and Sean O'Hegan, uh, he lives in Cork now, but he, you know, he spent most of his life in Canada. But like, he's a real interesting figure. To access his archive, I thought wasn't going to happen because basically all his stuff uh, recordings that he'd done in you know poetry festivals all over Europe and places like this were all on reel-to-reel tapes in a box that hadn't been opened for years. But thankfully his goddaughter, who's a composer living in Berlin, she would come over and visit and she's friends with Danny McCarthy and Mick O'Shea and people like that. So she went to Sean's place, took the box and did the incredible work of taking it to a studio, getting the tape, you know, oven cleaned and then digitized and basically I thought this was not going to happen. And then I received a hard drive in the post with like his entire archive. So I felt very lucky <laughs> that day and I'm still, I'm still going through it. Um, yeah. How much stuff is there? Oh Jesus. There's just years of stuff. Yeah. Like 
I think I'm going to try and eventually put together a, a collection of his work for release as well next year because some of it's just brilliant. Um, and a lot of people were pretty good. They Some people had kept up with their stuff, digitized everything over the years. Um, some people had to take tapes and get them digitized, but a few people had to look through boxes, which was all really exciting, you know. And it came together, yeah, like, so two years, really. On your two-year search, is there anything that you came across that really surprised you? When I was initially talking with Daniel Figgis, he was really surprised to be asked, and he pulled something out from when he was 15, I think, when he was experimenting with, like, dictaphones and stuff. So that track, that blew my mind when I heard that. Like, I think Daniel's track is incredible on there for the time. Yeah, definitely, like, like most of them, were, I thought, were quite innovative. And the Sean O'Hegan stuff, yeah, I'm a big fan of sound poetry. So when I heard that, and I was like, the standard of which he worked, that was really surprising. Not surprising, sorry, but it was just like, wow, this is exciting. Mm. Um, and I was really excited to be able to put it together because... You know, sometimes people put compilations together and they just want the names and the work there. They're not always so concerned with the quality of the work. But I feel like I think everyone's work is really strong on there and it, yeah, it speaks for itself. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like the artwork, we had to do a booklet, you know, so that's when the Dave Clifford essay came to mind. Give us another tune there before we talk about that. Okay, so we're going to take another one off the Under the Island comp. This is another Cork character. Agirdi O'Leary, who was in None Attacks. So I used to share, Bambi used to share a practice room in Dublin with Gerdy's band at the time, Nine Wazis from Banya. You know, he was just this character from Cork. I didn't know about None Attacks and stuff like that at the time. But now it's just like, wow, he's, you know, a bit of a legend. He was one of the first people I got in touch with, actually. Who was doing stuff when you were doing stuff? And again, he said, no one. Like... <laughs> Danny McCarthy. <laughs> so I was like, okay, great. This compilation is really flying along here. So this is, it's a guitar piece by Geardy called On Pockade. Thank you. 
That was Unpocket by Gertie O'Leary, and that's picked today by my guest Willie Shore from Yar Records. There's a brilliant accompanying essay with Under the Island by Dave Clifford, editor of the infamous Fox fanzine. Can you tell us a little bit about Vox and its cultural importance? Yeah, so Vox, it's before my time. Anyway, early 80s, I was still only a, a nipper. There was a book released of all the uh, all the issues together. I think they need to reissue it because it's it's a beautiful book. It's really well put together. It's vital for that time because it was covering, you know, the Virgin Prunes and Throbbing Gristle and all the adjacent bands that were happening in the UK and America and Ireland. You know, there's not a lot of Irish stuff in there, but there's there is some pretty interesting performance articles and interviews with people. Like, you know, the Cure are interviewed in it. Like that's how early it was essential part of the Irish underground at that time because it was small you know and then there was that legendary 24-hour gig that happened in the Project Arts Centre it was supposed to be Public Image Limited Throbbing Gristle and U2 and the Virgin Prunes and it was going to go on for 24 hours there was film screenings all kinds of stuff but for some reason and this seems so classic Irish like Public Image didn't play Throbbing Gristle didn't play I don't know why but those times in the 80s, it seemed it was hard. Everyone was broke. There's no work, depression, just like hard. But somebody tried to put on an amazing gig. It's legendary. And I think, it, so, weirdly enough, even though it was 24 hours, I think it went, went over time. <laughs> they just <laughs> couldn't fit it all in, even without Pill and Traveling Gristle. But yeah, that's kind of like the era that Vox is from. You know, that's the real, I don't know, interesting world where he talks in the magazine, you know, like, it covers punk noise, performance art, kind of gallery openings, just everything, but it's all sort of like underground, you know, at the time. So I just wrote to Dave Clifford, I don't know him at all, and I just explained what the compilation was, sent him the tracks, and he immediately was like, yeah, I can write you an essay to accompany the, to give it all context. Yeah, so without giving too much away, can you try to summarise the essence of Dave Clifford's essay as a cultural backdrop to experimental music being made in Ireland, particularly from the 60s to the 80s? You know, he says... By the 1970s, Ireland found itself in an acute state of decrepitude, partly due to the ruinous effects of a dubious past. It's important to contextualise this so as to draw attention to the stifling effect it had on free artistic expression. That's so vital that he brought that up because you're talking about Ireland in that period. And even though we had our independence, but we also had like De Valera, that was an incredibly oppressive figure in Irish society, him and you know, the bishops and the priests, they just controlled this country. And it was a monoculture. You know, if you were a good Catholic middle-class family, you did your work and you had your kids. And then if you were working class, you did your work, but you had more kids, you know, and there was just people living in squalor in the city centre and people in Dublin. And there was no thought about why this was happening. You had this fascist dictator, basically, who destroyed the country. Uh, it was handed to him and he destroyed it, you know. So that post-colonialism and de Valera has got a lot to do with why Ireland didn't thrive, why we didn't have more independent thinkers and extreme art. That really needs to be looked into and investigated, you know, because it is an interesting interesting theory. So some people have written about it. Why isn't? Why didn't Ireland have a bigger scene like they did in the UK, where we're like all the different tribes. Like we had, we did have mods and rockers and punks and all that stuff, but it was so small, you know, people were so conservative and so scared. It's like that film, um, The Rocky Road to Dublin, brilliant film filmed in the sixties. And the filmmaker asks, you know, that now that you have your revolution, what do you do with it? And we could have been from that point, one of the most progressive countries, but unfortunately 
Devilair had <laughs> a different idea for us. That track there was probably quite jarring after what I said beforehand. <laughs> but um, that was a track by Kurdish Syrian artist called Mohammed Sifkan, who lives quite close to me in Karakhan That's the title track off his new album that yeah are releasing in February. It's called I Am Kurdish. Yeah, it was really incredible to get to work with Mohammed. I've known him for a couple of years, uh, given him gigs, and uh, he played recently in the Opera House supporting Lancome. And that was really exciting to see how the audience would react to his kind of, you know, Middle Eastern uh, folk music, slightly ecstatic dance music that he does. It's exciting to work with someone like Mohammed, you know, because all across the board, uh, the music is, appeals to people. Um, it's not as niche as some of the other releases we do. So that's exciting to see, to see how that goes. And I just feel like it's so important now, if you are in a position to help promote people's music, we need to really show solidarity, especially with newcomers to Ireland and especially the past that Mohammed has, you know, in the conflict in Syria and ending up here. And he's such a beautiful musician. Um, he keeps that with him. That's his strength. So after all the madness that's happened in Dublin, the riots and all of this, you know, I think we all need to just be sound and make sure people do feel welcome that have only been here a short time. Here, here. Can you tell us a little bit about your artist retreat that yourself and Natalia are putting together? 
Yeah, artist retreat, that's a good word for it. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know if that was the right word. No, no, but that's yeah. like that's a descriptive term for it. Um yeah, so we've been living out in Leitrim now since two thousand and six and the house that we, we have is what an old stud farm. So it's like a farmhouse. We have two acres of land and a bunch of these stone outbuildings that were used as stables, but prior to that they could have been dwellings. The way they're set up, it looks like they were little houses, you know? Because I think at the time of the first census, there was like 30 people living on our townland. Now there's like four, you know? <laughs> so yeah, different times. So we just have wanted to do something ever since we moved out there, but we didn't know what we wanted to do. You know, we saw the potential uh, in these like stone buildings. And then at the beginning of lockdown, one of the gable walls on the old stone, stone buildings collapsed. So we're like, oh, we need to like sort this out now because otherwise the building will go into further decay or whatever. So we fixed up that wall and we just haven't stopped since. Um, so all our old, you know, stone buildings have been refurbished. They're really beautiful buildings, you know. So they're going to be the studio spaces. And then we've also constructed three timber frame cabins, which are the residential side. So you get to stay in a cabin and then you have a, a room in one of the stone buildings. So we want to kind of create a space for, you know, filmmakers, sound artists, writers, philosophers, scientists, whatever you want to do, um, and just create a kind of a interesting facility. That's a cold word, facility, artist retreat uh, for people <laughs> where they can come and be inspired and, and work and, you know, have access to recording equipment and a small screening room and your own private space out in a kind of a very peaceful rural setting, you know. Do you know when you spend a long time putting something together, it could be this compilation or a band or an album you made or, or, or the document you made in Ludo, you put all this work into it, you finish it and you finally release it. Do you ever get a sense of, <laughs> I always find when I release something, there's excitement, but there's also a little tinge of sadness with it as well. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like you're giving a little bit of yourself. I don't know yeah. what it is. Yeah, not really. No, yeah, no but I'll think about that because that's interesting. Yeah, but yeah, no, I never had that feeling. Okay, you're all—it's just always a good. You're, you're excited to get it. Excited out. Excited to get it out. I mean, obviously, there's always uncertainty. Like, will they sell? But like Ian Lynch's record—that was ridiculous. Like that was ridiculous. Like, I, Natalia was playing a concert in Brussels, you know, so I had to bring my laptop with me because I knew this was the launch date, but I knew I was going to be away. So we put it up as a pre-order, and we had sold a hundred copies before dinner. People were into it but it had been a folk album of the month in the guardian and of course it's lank it's lankham so that was wild um because we didn't know myself and ian didn't know how many to press up we were sure like we weren't sure if people were going to like it it's quite noisy will the lankham people like it you know should we be looking at a different audience like the more kind of noise black metal scenes but uh yeah just just did so well like it's we're doing a third pressing now which how many is in a pressing so we did 500 initially. That sold out pretty much straight away. And then we did another 500 because Lancome were going to be playing a lot of shows. And now Ian's decided to do uh, One Leg, One Eye as a live performance, which people have been asking him to do for like a year now. But he was like, I don't think I'll be able to do it. And but now he's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So now we have to, we're going to press up more records. <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty, for a label my size, that's a lot of records. So yeah, it was great. Um, and Ian's very generous with his time and stuff to be like, he wants this to, to fund other projects for the label. So fair play to him. All right, cool. I just have a couple of more questions to ask before we finish up. Um, do you still play the drums? I do play the drums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Woven Skull isn't really happening anymore, unfortunately, but 
um, I have started doing a lot of solo stuff. Um, and then I play drums with Natalia sometimes. We did a gig in Sligo recently where I played a, a drum and she played a sewing machine to a load of effects pedals. It got pretty noisy and pretty mental very quickly. So that's the thing that we're doing now as a duo. Um, and I've been doing a project with a percussionist and artist called Fritz Welsh, who's an American fella based in Glasgow. We've been uh, trading recordings through email where we'll just record ourselves playing whatever percussive stuff and then we'll overlay on each other's recordings. So that's been a really fun project. But yeah, I've been kind of getting back into it. I didn't play for a while, but now I'm really into doing solo stuff, kind of whatever you want to call it, avant-garde, free form. Is there any films in the pipeline or documentaries? This Under the Island compilation album has really raised a lot of eyebrows and a lot of questions and like the conversation we just had regarding Ireland's colonialist past. I've been trying to work on a treatment for a film that's based on the compilation, but going a little bit further back to Dr. Strangely Strange, you know, who were very active in Dublin in the 1960s, late 60s, Mellow Candle, they come from that sort of psyche folk scene, you know, and they're all like, they're still around, all of those people. And Sweeney's Men as well. Anything kind of pre, pre-Planksty when all these Irish musicians were getting into sort of Eastern music and North African music. So I wanted to, I think, yeah, I'd like to make a film to maybe answer some of these questions and interview some of these people while we still can. Not to sound morbid, but you know, life is life. Yeah, it could make for an interesting film and unearth footage that's lost in the RT archives or in someone's attic. And uh, yeah, make a film and present this work to the world. Okay, Willie, it was a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. I think it might be only right to finish off with the Woven Skull track. you got to give the people what they want. Yeah. You know, so I'll let you choose. <laughs>
tune in to Keeping Track every Monday at 1pm on UCC 98.3 FM. Keeping Track is hosted by me, Dave Hackett. I interview people in our community from all different backgrounds and my guests also choose the music that they love. When I'm not hosting an interview, I'll be playing a random selection of alternative music, old and new. Stay up to date with the show on Instagram where I announce upcoming guests and radio documentaries. You can listen back to previous shows on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Keeping track every Monday at 1 here on UCC 98.3 FM.